Emilio Viveri in piede que morire in ginocchio. It is better to live on your feet than to die on your knees. And that is the theme of this week. And welcome to The Way It Is, Episode 8, 15th of May, 2020. And this is the official Bobby Galinsky podcast. I am your official Bobby Galinsky. There is no other. One Bobby Galinsky to rule them all. And it's great to be with you in your living rooms or your lounge rooms, in your car, at the gym, while you're walking, while you're lying down in bed, wherever you are, I'm with you right now. I've got your back. And thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for subscribing. And if you haven't subscribed yet, no thank you. I want you to pause this right now, go straight to your platform and subscribe. Please do. I really appreciate it. And that's the only time I'm going to ask you this show until, of course, the end. Well, a lot's happened this week. I'm really tired, frankly. I was up at 3 a.m. this morning. There was a lot of stuff to do um, because we have been, I can't say trapped inside. And this is so weird because no matter who I'm speaking to around the world, we've all been kind of semi-trapped. There's things we can't do. There's There's places we can't go in our own, you know, suburb, let alone around the world. And um, it's been confining. It's been very confining, and I don't like that at all. I hate rules. I hate being told what to do. And I hate bully boys playing politics, keeping me from things that I want to do and destroying other people along the way. But we'll get into that later. Uh, It's a big day. It's a big day. There's so much to speak speak about, but it's very important to know where we've been in the past. And today in history, on the 15th of May, I know a lot of you were feeling feeling operatic when you got up this morning. And that's because on this day in 1858, the Royal Italian Opera opened in Covent Garden in London. And other little musical bits, on this day in 1941, Nazi occupiers in Netherlands forbid Jewish music. Well, I'm Jewish, and that kind of hits home, but actually, I don't like much Jewish music. I find it just a bit annoying most of the time. If you've been to a few bar mitzvahs in your life, a few weddings, yeah, it's happy and joyous and everything, but, you know, no one sits at home thinking, wow, man, let's put on some Jewish music. You know, it's it's just not... I, I put on David Bowie last night. I put on Radiohead, and... Most of you know that uh, I play some guitar and drums and a bit of keyboard. I'm learning keyboard. I won't pretend to be um, an expert, as I am in other areas. But man, my version of Burn the Witch on guitar last night, you'd think I I should tour with Radiohead. I might just play some excerpts from that. Also on this day, May 15th, in 1928, Mickey Mouse made his first ever appearance in the silent film Plane Crazy. And in 1954, KGLO, which is now KIMT, TV Channel 3 in Mason City, Iowa, had its first broadcast. Well, you know I'm from Iowa, but I'm from Sioux City. 
Mason City's kind of a toilet. But, you know, got to have a little bit of Iowa history in there. And we will segue right over to sport. The first baseball enclosure opened at Union Grounds in Brooklyn in 1862. So a lot of stuff happened. It was a big day. And it was a big week. I hope all of you had a lovely Mother's Day where applicable. We didn't have Mother's Day down here. Uh, there was no gatherings allowed in Victoria by the Unterschaufuhrer, Daniel Andrews. So you could go to the mall and meet your mom. You could go out anywhere and meet your mom. But you weren't allowed to have your mom over or visit your mom. I used to love Mother's Day when I was a kid. My mom, Muriel, loved Mother's Day. She'd always get lots of flowers. My brother and I absolutely adored her. We'd make cards for her, things like that. But the bad thing is that my dad would get up early and attempt to make breakfast and feed her in bed. Uh, and we'd eat that breakfast too. And, you know, he cooked like a Nazi. I swear to God, my father couldn't cook to save his life. But Mother's Day was always quite a joyous, happy, lovely time. But that's okay, because I always look at the bright side of things. And the beautiful bright side of all this is my lovely, agile, elegant wife and I take a walk every morning, a long walk, as you know. And the problem the last couple months is all the people that have been stuck home that normally go to the gym, that have been stuck home that would normally be working, and now they're working from home, that are stuck home because they don't have jobs, have all decided... Let's get in the car and go to the beach, mate. And so all these zombies from the outer suburbs, shoes and teeth optional, have come to my beach and now are flooding the beach. We, we talked about this in a previous episode. So what it's done is instead of getting into fights on the protocol of beach walking and going single file and giving way and being polite and being nice because it's more important to be nice than anything is we started walking inland into a lot of the, the neighborhoods just right around us, uh, spent an hour, hour and a half. And the amazing thing about that, the win and all that, and there's always a win in every setback is that we have seen some of the most amazing houses even in our, just a block away that you would never seen tucked away while you were driving or, or anything else. Amazing architecture, stunning architecture, groovy, just dollhouses, mansions, everything. And it's really gotten us just thinking about what's just in our own neighborhood. And lo and behold, serendipitously, as life happens, one of the uh, Instagram feeds that came in that I got quite enamored with, is one from a fantastic designer, and his name is Martin, and I hope I don't butcher his name, Martin Brudznicki. And he was born in Sweden. He's an interior architect. He lives between London and New York. And he designed my, our favorite restaurant currently in London right now, which is the Brasserie of Light inside Selfridge's department store. Now, I've mentioned this in previous episodes of some of my favorite places around the world. He's also done Annabelle's in London, um, the Soho House in Miami, um, Dean Street townhouses in London. He's just amazing, absolutely amazing. And his, his quote, one, one of his quotes in an article I read about him recently is, I believe anything can inspire you, even the mundane. 
even the mundane. It just depends on the way you choose to adapt that object, texture, or color. And you've really got to go to this guy's Instagram. And his surname is spelled Brudznicki, B-R-U-D-N-I-Z-K-I. Anyway, uh, I remember growing up in Sioux City, going up and down Valley Drive, up Blackstone, Sunset Circle, everywhere, going into uh, the top by the triangle. There was some, uh, it used to be the Everest House, which was, I believe, a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. I never really found out the clarity on that, but just an astonishing house. And even groovy little wild skinny houses out in Morningside. You, you remember them. A great piece of architecture sticks with you. It's, it's art that is for infinity. And it's one of the reasons I'm fascinated by fashion, too. Fashion is really that architecture with fabric that you can take home and you can wear. And you all in your own homes, whether you're in a small apartment or a big-ass house or a mansion or just a normal just a normal home. You've got little areas that you love. It's your favorite corner to read in. It's where the cat sleeps. Um, it might be in the bedroom. It might be an alcove somewhere. There's some favorite part of your place. And like Martin said, even the mundane, it's how you choose to adapt that. So if you can get that vibe throughout the rest of your life with the way you live and surroundings. And it doesn't take money. It just takes thinking and being aware and going, you know what? I really feel good in this corner of my house. Why do I feel so good in that corner of my house and I don't feel as good in other areas? I think that's a great project while you're locked up at home that might make your life just a bit more enjoyable. Anyway, this guy's a great guy to follow. And if you get to London, if they ever allow us to fly again. And for those of you, I know I've got, um, I think about 60 or 65 followers, subscribers, hate to call them followers, followers, you know, Jonestown, follow me down to Jonestown. Yeah, that punch is fine. Um, 60 or 65 subscribers in the UK. If you get to London, if you're in London and go to Selfridges when they reopen on the second floor men's department, they open this most astonishing all glass and mirror restaurant with an amazing amaze balls giant glittery Damien her sculpture of Pegasus and it goes right down to the uniforms of everyone that works so they got these little Pegasus brooches on there which I've tried every time to get them to sell or give to me or anything they're they're beyond bribery but make sure that you drink a lot and you've got to go to the toilet or the loo, as they say there, because the toilets, the bathrooms are unbelievable. Suffice to say, I haven't been to a better place to go to the toilet or just hang out since the Stark Club in Dallas with their transparent, translucent doors. But that's another story for another time that we've already spoken about. So today... We're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about a couple of stories that I that I actually created. We talked about an amazing story, the Dallas Buyers Club story, which is one of the most inspiring, old school, nice, what you give back is what you give, pay it forward, karmic, pull in a favor because you did a favor kind of stories. No politics involved, no 
canceling, no shaming, no Harvey Weinstein tactics, just people that tried to do the right thing, and it all coalesced decades and decades later. And I love that. And I've written a couple of those. Some of them are in various stages around the world. Some of them are dead as a doornail. But there's one I particularly want to talk to you about, and that'll be our feature story. And it's about the man who knew too much, but not enough in the end. And uh, talk about those guys in Sioux City. Everybody has a guy in Sioux City. You grow up in Sioux City, you got, you got a guy. And out in Boulder, Colorado, as we segue west, the places that you needed to be in the 70s that don't even exist anymore. And in fact, there's a website called I Grew Up in Boulder in, in the, or Lived in Boulder in the 70s on Facebook. And the guy that moderates it is unbelievably strict. You really, it's got more rules than Daniel Andrews. But it's a great site in that way because people don't abuse it. And people don't say, oh, I used to love ABC restaurant. And somebody doesn't chime in and go, ah, you're a fucking idiot. That was a shocking place. No, it's all nice and it's all polite. And it it works. It's in order. And uh, it's a great site if you grew up there. But you can't be in the site if you didn't grow up there or go to school there. So you actually might not be able to get into that private little club. And we're going to talk about icons of Hollywood in Los Angeles and then kind of swoop right back in here to Australia. I kind of hope that I'm being your fireside chat kind of guy, even if it's summertime there, wherever you are. I like to be that fireside chat kind of guy or the guy by the radio, because that's the one thing I miss is being told stories all the time. My mom used to read to me. My dad used to read to me. My mom would never get through the whole book. She'd kind of go, blah, 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 the end, go to sleep. But my dad was pretty good at uh, reading through things. And then, of course, testing me on on them later, which took all the fun out of it. And um, we'll touch a bit on politics. Great, great, winning, wonderful week in politics as the Honorable General Flynn his case was dropped by the Department of Justice after he was railroaded, railroaded, blackmailed, and uh, every possible bad thing by the FBI into a guilty plea a couple years ago. And uh, that's all coming out now. That's coming out now on both sides of the fence. And it's going to go all the way to the top, all the way to the seventh floor of the FBI where all the criminals operate, not the rank and file, but the bad boys, the bad girls. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do when they come for you, bad boys? And add John Brennan to that list, too. We're coming for you, John. We're coming for you. Yes. Look, that's your father. And I think you're gonna see some pretty, pretty interesting things over the next couple weeks. Mark my words on that. Wuhan news, all your favorites. So um, let's get into it. Let's get into it. I was talking about that guy in Sioux City. Everybody's got a guy. You know, you need your bicycle, bicycle fix. Those guys at Albright Cycle. Uh, the butcher, that guy Levitsky. The baker, 
Yep. Got to go to the baker out at Sioux City Bakery. Um, you know, butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Albright Cycle was where I got my very first bicycle that I bought with my own money. I will never forget that bike. Shiny, metallic green Schwinn Stingray with a sparkly silver banana seat and the, um, you know, big bar that you lean back onto like some bikey. It was cool to be a bikey, like Easy Rider, like Peter Fonda type thing. And cool-ass tassels coming off of the handlebars and the three-speed gear shift. That was on the crossbar in the middle. It wasn't on the handlebars. It was on the crossbar. So that if you hit a rock or a fucking tree, especially if you were a guy, you came off that bicycle seat and right onto that shift lever. And, you know, that was the first, you know, reassignment surgery. Because if you came off that bicycle hard enough and you were a guy, you weren't going to be a guy anymore. Man, I came down the street, Valley Drive, and I hit the big post box on the bottom where uh, Blackstone was. And I just completely annihilated myself. But um, I was okay after a few days. So I miss that bike. I miss that bike. I, uh, you know, didn't have a paper route, but I sold seeds in the neighborhood for the American Seed Company and sold stuff for Edmund Scientific and, you know, did a little bit of, um, you know, shoveling snow and things like that. Never mowed lawns. No way mowed lawns. Mowed lawns once. When we moved to Pelletier Drive, Dad designed that house. Um, had lots of terraces in the back. And he bought a ride-on lawnmower. My brother had gone out to college at that point. He bought a ride-on lawnmower, one of the first, and I thought it would give me incentive. Well, I drove the thing off the terrace, just about broke my neck. It was like a Christopher Reeve premonition. And, um, you know, destroyed the rider lawnmower. That's the only time I ever had the mower. Did it once. That was it. Never again. He hired people to do it. And uh, that was a great house. Speaking architecturally, my dad designed that from scratch with an architect helping him. I think a guy named Bob Hecker be going to the past. And uh, I thought that house was huge. And in fact, when I was in Sioux City for my son Chris's funeral last year, last August, which was an absolutely soul-slaughtering time, which I can't believe will be coming up on a year. Chris, wherever you are, big hug. Um, my brother did an amazing thing. He knows the people that bought my parents' house. In fact, it was his house. He bought it from my folks, and he lived on Pelletier Drive, 400 Pelletier Drive. And uh, he got them to open their house uh, for me and my other son, Steve, and uh, walk through it. And it was so surreal walking through where I spent my junior high and high school years. It was amazing. I can't remember the name of the couple that lives there now. But they uh, really respected the integrity of the original design and then brought it up and made it their own amazing house. My brother has an amazing house, too, up uh, in the country club area, the big, big, giant, giant house on the hill. It looks like the Guggenheim Art Museum, which had been purchased purchased. Perched on the hill. Let's have a speech therapy seminar, Bobby. Perched, not purchased, perched. And he's got this big, long, windy 
you know, house on Haunted Hill Road that goes up there and the weeds grow up high in the summer. It's hard to see. And if you want to see a groovy house, get in your car, get about 20 guys, lots of beer, and drive up and down the road really fast and throw out beer cans. He loves that. Absolutely loves that, especially late at night. He's really keen on that. No, actually not. Don't ever go up that road. He's heavily armed. Trust me, don't go up that road unless he invites you. But it's an amazing house. He was quite visionary, visionary like Klaus Barbie when he uh, designed it and built it. And uh, he's a good man. That that uh, trip to my old house that he organized was one of the greatest things ever and what was possibly one of the saddest weeks ever. But on the other side of darkness is light. So let's lighten it up a bit. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Yes, it's that time for What Is Your Podcaster Wearing? Well, today, I was a victim of boredom, and during the lockdown, early in the lockdown, while perusing the internet, I ordered an amazing white wool Ami Paris sweater, or jumper, as we call them here, with her groovy heart logo on it a me for friend and a pair of black corduroy stone island pants lovely easygoing label cargo pants with big giant pockets on it so i think that i look groovy even though i'm 66 i do it's okay um as a narcissist you you can just throw it at me i'll, I'll get over it i'll get over it and uh those staples those y3 sneakers i just can't seem to take them off so a me paris is an amazing label, and you should check them out. And they will be in the show notes with uh, a photo. And the sweater, by the way, came online from Harvey Nichols in London. I mention London a lot because, as you know, my wife is English, and we like to go there a lot. And it's just absolutely one of our favorite cities in the world. You cannot get bored in London any time of the year. And we especially love it at Christmas time with the lights and everything. It's just astonishing. And uh, unsolicited uh, little ad here. When uh, you travel, when travel begins again, check out IG Lux Travel in San Diego. IG Lux. Uh, John Clifford there. It's the old story. It doesn't cost you any more to use a travel agent. Yeah, you can go online and do all that stuff yourself. But nobody is going to give you a travel experience like this guy. I handled my 60th birthday trip and 65th and our anniversary and stuff. And he, he just finds the most amazing hotels and deals and just angles and amenities and things that you, that just make a trip amazing. And it doesn't matter what your budget is. And there's no commercial consideration here. He's just a guy who's an awesome friend and I know the travel industry is absolutely stuffed, rooted, just annihilated right now. So when it does open up, just give the guy a call uh, or check out his Instagram. A couple other mid-podcast shout-outs. Uh, I've got some longtime friends and mentor clients, coaching clients of mine and associates that to see from time to time that uh, are doing well and thinking unique thoughts and, and smart thoughts and outside the box and just being 
fantastic on social media. And it's not because they agree with me. A lot of them disagree with me and things. But it's just nice to see him persevering and kicking goals and um, going against the wind, taking the road less traveled, so to speak. An old friend, Gary O'Toole, um, writer and filmmaker, uh, Natalie Hasloff and Nancy Rizik, uh, all here in Australia. Uh, Fotis Kapitopoulos, name, he's my uh, my Greek philosopher, uh, in London, um, now in L.A., Glenn and Heather West Glenn composed the music. The incoming music on this podcast, and he and his wife, Heather, who's an American, he's English, are putting together an astonishing, astonishing secret project, a uh, period piece, which I'm not allowed to talk about, but also developed the TV series Fulfillment. Also, shout out to legendary acting coach Peter Kalos. Now, once upon a time, in a suburb called Marubra, south of Sydney, a beach community south of Sydney, in the mid-90s, came a lawyer named Max Green, nice Jewish boy. Now, he came from Marubra, um, conservative Jewish family, had an older brother who was kind of a wonderkin, Phil. Anyway, Max had moved to Melbourne and became part of a big law firm and married into possibly one of the most prominent Jewish families in the country and had the keys to the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, as Nicole Kidman once told me after she married Tom Cruise. Always marry well. It'll help your career, no matter how good you are. But uh, Max married into the kingdom. His father-in-law owned the law firm. Uh, he got a cush job. Uh, but he never got the respect. He never got the respect. He was always the son-in-law who wasn't doing as well, who had rented before he bought a home, um, and maybe wasn't taking care of, you know, the father-in-law's daughter just as well as he liked. But anyway, so they gave him all the shitty jobs in the law firm. And he'd had a couple other ventures and things like that, and they hadn't gone very well. And he always lived in the shadow of his older brother, Phil. This is a true story. All my stories are true, actually. And Phil was a hedge fund king. Well, no matter how much money Max made marrying well, and no matter how great a job he had, and every credit card on the planet, and every membership at all the posh golf courses and everything like that, he just didn't get the self-esteem of having done something big on his own. So he hatched a plan in the early 90s that he was going to do something big. And he went around with an investment plan where, as in those of you that live in Melbourne might remember this, CityLink was being built. CityLink was the big highway system out to the airport. Um, in New York, you've got all the expressways. In uh, the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway and all the bridges in L.A., you've got the 10, the 405, and all those things. In London, you know, the, the M and all the ring roads and stuff. Well, Melbourne was pretty much a toilet in the 80s and early 90s. And then Premier Jeff Kennett came in and started building a lot of roads and out to the airport. And it became a powerful city. Sydney was the only city worth anything before then. Anyway, make a long story short, as they were financing the road, 
Max came up with a groovy plan that all those cones, those witches' hats and gloves and all the millions and millions and millions of little construction line items that were being purchased, if, if you invested in them, the government would give you a 300% tax abatement. So if you put a million dollars into something, you'd have a three hundred, I'm sorry, a three million dollar tax deduction. And this was all true. This was all fair dinkum, as we say down here, a legitimate deduction. So if you had the top end of town, the really wealthy people that needed a tax deduction, this was huge. For every dollar you'd put in, you get three dollars off your taxes. How could you lose? So what could be wrong with that? Well, there was only two things that really weren't quite right with that. One, Max was selling the deal and taking huge commissions, and he didn't have the deal. He had never signed a deal with Transurban City Lake, the builder. Whoops. And second of all, he sold $40 million worth of investments. Now, if you did the math on that, $40 million, those witches' hats and cones would have stretched all the way to the fucking moon and back. But nobody ever did the math. They just knew this guy who was married to the wealthiest girl, one of the wealthiest girls in the country, and worked for a top law firm. If he was coming to them selling this, well, had to be real. So to compress several years into a very short, concise, riveting tale, Max took the $40 million, and instead of just taking a commission on a deal that he didn't own, on a deal that was not really right, he just took all the money. He opened up an account at the National Australia Bank in Elgin Street, Carlton, which is a suburb on the other side of the river, kind of an Italian mafia suburb, uh, with very good Italian restaurants. I know you're not supposed to say mafia. La Cosa Nostro. And um, he signed over all the checks and made up a fake signature and kept the $40 million sent it all to Thailand, where he bought a bunch of stolen sapphires and gems from the dodgiest, most sus, um, suspicious people on the planet. And then he was going to fence those off, make a long story short, get the $40 million back, put it back into the account, and have, you know, 20, 30, 40 million for himself. That was the plan. Well, as if... Accountants and attorneys weren't going to audit the firm as if that was ever going to really happen right and as if his penchant for sex tours and opium and all the rest that he discovered on his tours through Asia wasn't going to come good all the while with the son that was just about to be bar mitzvah. So he was not a good Jewish boy and he thought this would be the one thing that would eclipse his older brother. So to make a long story short, again, uh, a former SAS soldier named Kerry Danes and his wife Kay Danes were stationed in Laos at the time. And all these gems, these gemstones came from Laos and into Thailand and back. And it is alleged that as the Daneses fled uh, the country, they may have had some of those stones with them going back to Australia, but they were captured and imprisoned for um, I think about 10 months in Laos and the foreign minister here, Alexander Downer, uh, the same one who is implicated in that George Papadopoulos uh, fiasco with uh, the Trump campaign that uh, got Papadopoulos in hot water, and now it seems he's been vindicated, and that's all part of the General Flynn spygate thing. 
so many levels of spider webs there. But to make a long story short, the Danes got in trouble. We don't really know for sure what happened, but we suspect. And Max was trying to extricate himself from the deal. And unfortunately, went to Cambodia to the Sofitel in Phnom Penh and wound up having his head smashed to smithereens on a marble table in his suite where he was killed. And mysteriously, the hotel security system had been turned off that night. And that was kind of the end of his tale. He did want to do something to eclipse his brother. And his abscond of $40 million single-handedly, uh, none of the money of which was recovered, is the single uh, greatest individual lawyer scam in the history of Australia. And I adapted two books, uh, 10 Months in Laos and Lawyers, Gems, and Money by author Paul Conroy uh, a couple years ago and have been thinking a lot about that project lately with, was with a couple of local producers, uh, friends who placed it also with a connection, an Academy Award nominee in the U.S., producer, and it's been on my mind the past couple weeks since uh, since Jupiter came into our mystic Medusa world, as you might remember, and I just got a feeling something could be happening. I hope so. Um, as a writer, I create stories, and as a producer, I've been fortunate to produce them um, in the past. Uh, but more often than not, I write a script for someone, and it goes out into the ether, and then someone else produces it or raises the money or uh, it gets made or it doesn't get made or it uh, like Dallas Buyers Club, it might be 20 years in the making or 10 years in the making. And um, that's the angst in this industry of um, creating and then waiting. That's what I love about this podcast. It's because I can just create it and then a few hours later it's up and gone. And no one tells me what to do and don't have to wait for money and Nobody can tell me what to say or not to say other than my wife who doesn't listen to the podcast. And um, that's the angst that I go through every waking moment as a writer, waiting and waiting and waiting when there's things that I have no control on. So I hope you feel my pain. Another one of those out there that has come close so many times, that's had the money so many times, and falling apart, much like the Dallas Buyers Club project fell apart, but had a savior, is a project called Dust and Glory from the eponymous novel by the late Evan Green, which chronicled the longest, toughest road race in the world. Um, three years straight, 1952, 53, and 54 in Australia, where they went around the outside rim. So if you can imagine in the U.S. like going from Baltimore up to Maine, all the way across to Toronto, over to Vancouver, down to San Francisco, L.A., down to Texas, down to Louisiana, to Florida, and back up the eastern seaboard. That's about the size of Australia. Um, 15,000 miles, 22,000 kilometers around the outside rim of Australia in the 50s where they had no roads. They had no roads. And any car could enter. And race cars didn't do well because... You know, you get out in the dirt tracks and they're, you know, they get bogged. 
Uh, a Rolls Royce went all the way around with an 86-year-old woman called Granny. Uh, amazing race. It was kind of like Cannonball Run meets Wacky Races. And uh, astonishing project, astonishing story, if I say so myself. And perhaps one day, that one will find somebody like Cassie and Elways or Nick Chartier to rescue it. Who knows? That's why I'm putting it out there on the waves. A couple of years ago, it was very close. We thought we had all the funds, and it did for a few brief shining moments. And Simon West, who directed Con Air and Expendables 2, amazing director, was attached, and a couple of key stars. And uh, the, the, key, the, the key role was a fellow named Jellignite Jack Murray, who was called that because he would throw Jellignite dynamite at other cars to pass them. And this this is all true. And uh, only in Australia would stuff like this happen. Anyway, who knows if it'll be relegated to the dustbin of memories that never will get made. Or maybe next week, next year, 10 years from now, it could happen. We, we actually had several investors over the course of uh, several years, and including one guy who was a relatively well-known real estate developer who... Uh, then disappeared from Australia and went back to Belarus near Russia, uh, never to return. And then a very famous doctor who owned a football team here, the Sydney Swans. And uh, he backed out the last minute when uh, the $80 million he made selling medical clinics got uh, chased by the tax office and he declared bankruptcy. Um, he'd spent some time in federal prison for hiring a hitman to kill one of his patients who hadn't paid. Um, that's what he went to prison for. He said it was not true. But we, we attract some great characters in this, this industry. And in fact, on one film many years ago, um, when an investor fell out, we had to go out to possibly one of the worst suburbs ever at 4 a.m. on a rainy, cold night, um, Fern Tree Gully, sorry if you live there, to a smash repair place to get cash from an Albanian smash repairman to uh, save the movie. And all they wanted was to meet the star um, and um, have a picture with her, which I said, hey, no problem, mate. Anyway, how do we attract this kind of stuff? What goes on? The only reason I got into producing, by the way, was a, a great director, rather unheralded director named Scott Roberts, who years and years and years and years and years ago, I was lamenting, you know, being a writer that, you know, sometimes films that get produced, sometimes they never get produced. You get paid sometimes in advance, and sometimes you only get paid when the film gets made. But I was lamenting that always had the weight. I suppose it would be like perhaps um, any architect that designs a house or a building or a club or whatever, and then the money doesn't come and it never gets made. Your your creation is not born until it actually is built. And he said, well, Bobby, why don't you just produce it yourself? Just go out and raise the money and get the people and make it happen, which is something that I used to do when I was at Disney, raising money. And I thought, well, you know what? Good idea. And one night I lit a candle, looked in the mirror, and said, how hard can this be? And I think that was the last night that I slept for like three years. But uh, thank you, Scott Roberts, for getting me into the production side of things. Anyway, just as I said that, a big beam of light 
came through my window here. No, it's not an acid flashback, although it very well could be. I fit the uh, profile, but a beautiful beam of light. The sun came out. It's uh, about 14, 15 degrees here centigrade, 56, 57 Fahrenheit where you are. And it's been lovely all week. It's been kind of early winter, late autumn. Um, it did bucket down rain for a couple of days. And my wife and I walked quite early and we got annihilated one morning. Um, neither rain nor sleet nor snow, hail, dark of night keeps us from our walk. And um, beautiful day, beautiful day here, Friday, pre-weekend, pre-continuation of lockdown weekend. Now, one of the things I'm really looking forward to, can you can you feel a spring in my step? Um I had a major coffee. I just had an absolute, took a break for a second. Um, yes, these podcasts are somewhat edited from time to time. I actually stop and go to the, the bathroom once in a while or make a coffee. I made a double espresso, which is, you know, black crack and just it's zooming me because I could sense I was going into that lisp that I talked about in the first or second episode when I was a bit tired. Like I said, I got up at 3 a.m., and had lots of things to do today. I normally don't get up that early. I get up pretty early, but uh, I just feel invigorated. So if we zoom out to Los Angeles and to Hollywood, because we've been kind of talking about Hollywood, one of the things I'm really excited about is the reopening of cinemas. I really miss cinemas. I can binge Netflix and, and suck it dry like a vampire and look like Nancy Pelosi, but it's not the same as going to the cinema. Is there anything better than sitting in the cinema, smelling popcorn, sitting there with your popcorn and Diet Coke? I know the irony of it all. And then the curtains open wider and the show starts. And no matter how bad a film it's going to be for those first few seconds, you think it's going to be a great film because otherwise why would you have spent, you know, 20 30 $40 gold class here in Australia or, um, you know, 10 or $12 on Tight Ass Tuesday, as they call it down here. Movies are really expensive in Australia compared to the U.S., and we have lots of ads, um, and a lot of really bad ads, too. Really crummy, poorly produced, shitty, annoying real estate and university ads that you have to suffer through, like waterboarding, before the fucking movie starts. Drives me mental, especially when you spend all that money. The only ads that are pretty good is... The major car makers make some really gorgeous ads, like Honda and BMW, uh, which screen before the movies. And strangely enough, South Australia, which is one of the states and territories of Australia, which really has no reason to go there other than the scenery and the wine, the tourism of South Australia makes the most beautiful tourism ads. You'd think, holy shit. I want to drop everything and go to South Australia now. But once you're there and you see the people seriously have things wrong with them. Um, it's like Tennessee without Nashville. It's like West Virginia without coal mines. It's like, uh, well, it's South Australia. But a lot of really talented people come out of South Australia. In fact, some of the best artists and directors and film people in Australia actually come out of South Australia, but they leave. As soon as they're old enough to drive, they get GTFO. Um, and there's fantastic wines and great food and stuff like that. But Adelaide is a really 
creepy city in a suburb of Adelaide, a snow town, where a bunch of psychos killed pensioners, retired people, for their pension checks. These aren't people that, like Max Green, robbed $40 million from the the most the wealthiest clients in Australia and zoomed over to Thailand trying to turn it into $80 million and was beheaded in a hotel room naked, you know, coked out of his head in, in Cambodia. These are really messed up, methodic, kind of bikey, creepy, you know, people that left school in, in year four that thought, let's kill pensioners, people that are retired, and get their weekly or monthly pension checks because no one will notice them missing and put them in barrels of acid in an old Commonwealth bank. Um, the movie Snowtown was made by a local named Justin Kurtzeal, which is a very, very scary movie. Um, and he's moved on to mainstream movies now. He, he made, remade Macbeth. Once you're making films like Macbeth, you know, you become an auteur. I'm sorry, we don't make horror films anymore. We're an auteur. Yes, thank you very much. But where was I? Oh, Brighton. Where was I going? L.A. Oh, yes, moving, missing movie theaters. See, I could edit this out, but I don't want to edit it out. I'm too lazy for that. I edit out really the, the things that just can't be on the radio or on the, on the podcast. Um, I miss the movies. And two of the big movies coming out, three of the big movies coming out to reopen cinemas worldwide are Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which Christopher Nolan cannot make a bad film. Can I make a bad film? This is a guy that made The Dark Knight, Inception, Interstellar, uh, Dunkirk, Memento, The Prestige. The Prestige, one of my favorite films. Christian Bale, amazing. And in my mind, the best Hugh Jackman performance ever. Unbelievable film. Fantastic film. Anyway, the trailer for Tenet looks great. And, And by the way, even if a trailer's bad, some people say, oh, that'll suck. I really hate it when people say, that'll suck. And then kind of review it without seeing it. How, you know, could be a bad trailer, but it could be an amazing film. I despise when people, re- you know, self-review and cancel without having gone to read the book or see the film or whatever. And especially a lot of people because they see it for free and they don't even pay. I pay to see all movies. Unless, you know, some free tickets come my way. I like to support local artists, but I'm not, um, you know, xenophobic about Australian films. To me, I don't think, oh, it's an Australian film. It's just a film. It's like, you know, oh, is that a Canadian donut? No, it's just a donut. Um, Whereas most Australian filmmakers are a little bit pedantic about that. Oh, support the Australian industry. Well, I support good film. It's a bad film. I don't care if it was made in Zimbabwe or Australia. If it sucks, let people know it sucks. Don't go light on anybody. Anyway, Christopher Nolan, Tenet, looks amazing. It's going to be in 70 millimeter IMAX, the whole nine yards at cinemas. I don't care how good your your cinema is at home, you know, with speakers the size of Rosie O'Donnell, um, or whatever, the shared experience of being in a big cinema with a zillion people, all with Wuhan flu. How can you miss that? And of course, Disney's Mulan is opening. They've kind of saved that one. 
semi interests me. After many years at Disney, I, I both I have a love hate relationship with the company. The mouse was very good to me, but yet I hate mice now, and I think it's as a result of that. And also, I think the first film to hit cinemas is going to be Russell Crowe's new film, Unhinged. And it's the 20-year anniversary of Gladiator, by the way. What an amazing film. So a lot going on, a lot to anticipate in Hollywood. And maybe everyone will have a certain attitude of gratitude and not need the checkup from the neck up because they've been closed for months and lost their money and millions of people lost jobs. And maybe people will be just a little less political and be grateful that they've created a beautiful film or even a not a good film. Maybe just an absolute piece of rubbish that should go straight to mandolin picks. But we could all just maybe kind of get along and be nice. I am looking forward to a little bit of normalcy this next couple of weeks, like the movies and stuff like that. My lovely, graceful dancing wife, um, she loves to dance. She is an amazing dancer. You watch her dance, it's like, wow. Um, goes to like a, a dancing class every um, week with some friends of hers, all a bunch of ladies um, cruising around the dance floor. Well, so I'm told. Maybe I should check that out. But to watch her dance is amazing. So she'll be back out, and um, then I can turn the guitar amps up to 10 or even 11 while she's out and get back to making a lot of noise here. And I'm really looking forward to that because um, I don't care what the neighbors say, but I do care what she says. And um, I took dancing lessons when we went on a cruise last year on the Cunard Line, the Queen Elizabeth II, uh, a ship we love. Um, I took a bunch of dance. We took dancing lessons together because I have big feet, as you've seen with my shoes, size 13 shoes. That's a 12 UK. It's a 46 Australian. And I'm clumsy. I'm a good skier. And I think I'm relatively athletic. But I'm also clumsy, kind of like a slightly retarded mountain goat. They go, oh, mountain goat, nimble, you know, or an ibex hopping around from stones to stones, you know, like on Richard Attenborough videos. Richard Attenborough, who, who I used to love until he went full Gretard Thunberg and started telling us we're all going to die from climate change. Oh, sorry. I guess we're all still alive. What happened to climate change? Dick. Um, anyway, make a long story short, took dancing lessons. And I actually thought I was getting competent. I wasn't stepping on my wife's feet and, you know, knocking her over. And I thought, wow, we kind of look good together. We even videoed ourselves a little bit. I thought I look competent. And then we got on the ship and watching people dance on the ship. It's like Arthur fucking Murray. It's like Fred Astaire and Ginger. Um, so outclassed that I decided, no, could never do it again in front of people. That having been said, in my big nightclub days, which ran from, well, I think about 1971 till about 1993, I think it ended on a Thursday when I met my wife, I used to love going clubbing and dancing. Now, I thought I was pretty good, and people seemed to think I was okay, but then again, it could have been the ecstasy. And maybe they were only smiling because I look like such an idiot. I don't know, but I felt a lot more confident back then. Oh, well, past life.
One could say that perhaps I've transmogrified and gone from acid to assets in my later years. Anyway, it's kind of come to that that time where I'm wrapping it up. And the reason I'm wrapping it up is because I'm really hungry. I'm starving. And I've been up since 3 a.m. And all I'm thinking about now, just swimming through my head doing this podcast, is old restaurants I used to love in, in Sioux City where I, I grew up. Oh, the Normandy. The Normandy was a buffet. They had the most amazing fried chicken, the most amazing fish, sweet rolls that oozed 86,242 calories of goodness. And you could go back 106 times. And it burned to the ground after I left Sioux City. I don't know who burned it or if it burned by accident. There's no such thing as an accidental fire. Loved the Normandy. And also, out in Boulder, Colorado, when I was at university, used to love the broker. The broker had an all-you-can-eat shrimp cocktail. So you could go out there. As long as you're having dinner, you could have all-you-can-eat shrimp cocktail. What we used to do with tons of lewds, get dialed out of our mind, drive out there and eat about $1,000 worth of shrimp and then still eat the steak and lobster thing like that like, too. And my uh, friend G. Brown and Mark Louis Lewis, who was the keyboardist for the New World Mutants, oh, he was like Keith Emerson. He was like the most amazing, amazing key, keyboard player, like Rick Wakeman, but way groovier. And, uh, but with a lot more issues too, but that's okay. But we used to go out there and decimate the place. And then they took the all-you-can-eat shrimp bowl away. And then it was, you know, one shrimp bowl. And uh, in Sioux City also, there was the paddock, which was like giant prime rib and the flamingo. When my parents took me to the flamingo, which was in South Sioux City, Nebraska. I know, Nebraska, the COVID-19 of states used to love the Flamingo, but also in Sioux City, the Joe Gant Steakhouse. The Joe Gant Steakhouse, when I grew up, was one of those places where the menu had no prices on it for the women because in the 50s and 60s, the guys were the money earners and the women looked nice and went to dinner with their husbands, kind of like in Mad Men. That might have been untrue, but in my world, it was true. So my dad would get the menu with the prices on it, my mom and the kids, my brother and I, would get the menus with no prices on it. So when I was really small, I used to think, fuck, it doesn't cost anything to eat here. How good is that? No prices. But then I figured it out, so to speak. And uh, also in Boulder, the Red Lion Inn, that was where you went if you had a very special date or something like that. The Red Lion Inn was amazing. I think it's still there. I hope it's still there. In Captiva, Florida, because I lived in Sanibel Island, for several years, my folks lived in Naples. The bubble room. And my son Steve knows how to make bubble bread. If you've been to Captiva and the bubble room, one of the most amazing kitsch restaurants ever. And in L.A., my many years in L.A., Perino's, way down in mid-Wilshire district, which was the mobster hangout in the 40s and 50s. I think it closed in about late 1990s, really. 2000. It was amazing. And my favorite in my hood, Kate Mantellini. Kate Mantellini on Wilshire near CAA and ICM and where all the agencies used to be. Because I lived on South Cannon Drive right around the corner before I moved out to Pacific Palisades and then Santa Monica. And 
Kate Mantellini was also where that famous scene in Heat with Robert De Niro facing off against Al Pacino was filmed. And I had no idea why it closed. It seemed to be very successful. It also had the best artichoke dip in French onion soup and um, onion rings. So all of that food is swimming through my head and I'm starving. And just as I'm, you know, talking about it now, other places are coming up, like the Buckhead Diner um, in Atlanta, where I lived briefly, where I lived at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Buckhead, which is possibly the best corporate stay ever for eight months. Thank you, Disney. And Sylvia's Fried Chicken and Waffles on Malcolm X Boulevard in Harlem. Oh, my God. Fried Chicken and Waffles. Unbelievable. I know it sounds like an odd combination, but amazing. And that's... You know, as I'm sitting here thinking, um, before we break up, that's probably why I had such substance abuse problems, because you think of these great restaurants, and they don't exist anymore. And it's like if you have a hankering for a certain kind of food and you can't get it, you're frustrated. Whereas in the old days of substance abuse, I could just make a phone call, get what I want, and be completely satisfied and very happy. No wanting, just having Hey, I'll have an eight ball. Let's go rack up. But what goes down must come up. And what goes up must come down. And uh, then, of course, you'd have the after effects. Never came home from, you know, the Normandy or uh, Perino's and slept for six days and, you know, was missing $500 from my wallet. Um, So, no, I don't miss those days. Although, hey. Whoever said hugs are better than drugs never really did good drugs. But, you know, don't try that this at home, kids. Okay, lunchtime. But I won't be getting any of it. I don't know what I'll be making for lunch. I don't know. I hope not something sad like a tuna fish sandwich. We'll let you know next week. So, in the meantime, I hope that was food for thought. I hope you have a great week. And there's a lot going on, and it's tempting to be really mean and horrific. But at the end of the day, it's nice to be important, but you know, it's way more important to be nice. We'll catch you next week. All the best. Cheers.